Amen. And you can grab a seat. Um, if you have your Bibles, eventually tonight, I promise that we will land in Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, or through 15, I'm sorry. So you might want to turn there, but it's going to be a while. Uh, I'm not Corinthians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Uh, a couple announcements for you as we are going forward. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time in a while, maybe you've been away to school, maybe you've been away taking finals, uh, maybe you're still cramming for finals, uh, but you're looking to connect with us here as a ministry, there's something that we have as an opportunity for you to do that. Uh, and I think the best way to get to know somebody is just over a meal. And so what we do is once a month for people who are new or people who are returning and have been gone for a while, uh, we just invite you to dinner. And so that is theoretically going to be at my apartment unless a lot of people sign up and then there's not enough room at my little apartment. So uh, you'll notice that on our Instagram and then on our Facebook, uh, there is a flyer for that. And we ask that you send an email to tlo at baylife.org to let us know if you're going to be stopping by that. Uh, so if you've been here for two or three weeks and you're like, hey, I wouldn't mind getting to know people better, connecting with this, that is your opportunity. So check the flyer there, and I just want to make you aware of that. Also, a reminder that we consistently weekly donate to the Women's Resource Center. Uh, and I don't know that the box was out this evening. It'll be back out next week. And this is a ministry house here at our church. And it is our desire that we would be a people who don't simply hear the word, but we do the word. And we're told in James that true religion that pleases God is the one that takes care of the widow and the orphan and their affliction. And we want to be a people who do that. So uh, make sure that you maybe give up some Starbucks. It's not even that good anyways. Uh, and buy a couple cans of food or, or maybe... Uh, uh, basic things like children's socks and donate that uh, weekly. That is what we do instead of actually taking up an offering as a ministry. So uh, we are concluding a series that we started about three weeks ago called Prophet, Priest, and King. And what we are doing in this series is examining what is called the threefold office of Christ. Now, very, very early on in the history of Christianity, Christians recognized that in looking at the Old Testament, there are shadows that find their substance in Jesus. There are roads that find their end in him. There are threads that find their tapestry there and are fulfilled in his person and his work. And Jesus actually points us in this direction after his resurrection. In Luke 24, there is this account called the road to Emmaus, if your Bible has the little headings. Uh, and in the road to Emmaus, or on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking alongside these two disciples. One's name is Cleopas, the other one is not named. Uh, this is after the crucifixion, it's after the resurrection, but it's also before word about the resurrection has gotten out. And so Jesus comes alongside these disciples, and we're told that they look sad, that they're downcast. And Jesus says, why are you bummed? As though Jesus doesn't know. Uh, and they say that we thought that this man named Jesus was the Messiah, the one to redeem Israel, but all these things have happened. He's been crucified. And Jesus responds by saying, you foolish people, slow of heart to believe all that was written and spoken. Did you not know that the Messiah must suffer these things before entering into his glory? And then Luke leaves this little addendum there. And he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained all that was written concerning himself. In what is probably the greatest Bible study in all of history, I mean, we offer life groups throughout the week, but they're not going to ever touch the road to Emmaus Bible study that Jesus leads these people in because he is officially telling you, this is what's pointing to me. How do I know? Because I wrote it. And so he gives us this direction 
as his people to look into the Old Testament and to see these shadows that find their fullness and their form in Jesus. And so Christians throughout the centuries have looked and they've noticed very clearly that God interacts with the people of Israel through these three offices, the office of a prophet, the office of a priest, the office of the king. It's how he works among his people under the old covenant. And in reality, all of these offices don't terminate on on themselves. They're not just, oh, wasn't it cool that God sent prophets and priests and kings? But they're ultimately meant to point us to Jesus himself. In fact, I would say this. We call Jesus Christ, which means anointed one. We call him Messiah. We call him Savior. We call him Deliverer as Christians. He is none of those things apart from being a prophet and a priest and a king. If he is not all of them, he is nothing. He must be a truer and a better prophet, a truer and better priest, a truer and better king. It's for this reason that this has not just been called the threefold office, it's been called the triple cure. The threefold cure to the problem of humanity. Because the reality is that scripture diagnoses us as having these three great and devastating ailments, these bleeding wounds at the heart of the human condition. And if we are going to be saved, that savior must save us from these things. It's not enough to save us from one, We've still got three gunshot wounds, or two rather. It's not enough to save us from two and a half. We're still hemorrhaging from the other one and a half. If there is to be a Messiah, he must be these three three things to answer our three deep and great needs at the heart of the human condition. So we've used this medical terminology uh, kind of in keeping with this threefold cure. So imagine with me, if you will, this scenario. Let's say that you or I, or maybe both of us, for some reason, are sitting in a hospital room together. I don't plan on doing that for fun with any of you. Um, but let's presume we sit in a hospital room, and the doctor comes in and gives us this diagnosis, this utterly shattering, life-altering, devastating diagnosis that you have either contracted or developed an incurable, entirely fatal sickness. Uh, that there is, apart from intervention, no hope of recovery. You will die. 10 out of 10 will not live. And the doctor offers you this hope. He offers you this comfort. He says, the great news is that we have a cure for this. If you forego the cure, you die. If you accept the cure, it will solve the problem. And, and at this point, uh, you or I or maybe both of us, because maybe we're both in the hospital for the same thing. Uh, the doc, this, this word is heartening to us. And we say, well, tell us about this cure. I, I don't want to die. Nobody necessarily does. And so the doctor says, well, I've got some great things that I can tell you about it. Uh, the first of which is that it will make you much, much happier. You say, okay, that's cool. I was a little bummed when I found out that I was about to expire, so that's nice. Happiness is a good start. He says, I I can actually go a little bit further. I can tell you, not only will you be happier overall, but you're going to have this uh, increased positive self-image, and you'll be a much more moral person. And you say, sounds nice. I was thinking a little bit less of myself when I figured out I was going to die. And he says, oh, it doesn't stop there. It actually goes further because not only will you be happier and have a better sense of yourself, a better self-image, but you will actually, through this miraculous cure, attract to yourself that white picket fence wife or husband, two and a half children, and the car that you have always wanted. And you say, sounds great. Wish I could enjoy it because I'm going to die. 
And he can go on and on and on in describing these things. And at some point, we have to ask the question, what sort of cure is this? It's not meeting the present and clear and real need. My best life now, as you've described it, means nothing if that best life now lasts for two days. And I am going to die. And and this is a silly and an absurd example. And if anybody's doing med school, I hope you're not such a kind of doctor as this one. But how terrible it would be for you and I to point our friends or to be pointed to to the scriptures and to see the diagnosis of the human condition that the Bible lays out. And trust me, it's bleak. The human condition that the Bible describes is not sad people needing to be made happy. Uh, It's not uh, impoverished people needing more material possessions. It's not people with poor self-image that need to be made to feel better about themselves. It is utterly dead people who must be made alive. And if in pointing people to scripture, they see this diagnosis and we respond, oh, but I have good news. There's a cure. Jesus came so that you would be happy and not have bad things happen to you. The response will be the same. It doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't fix the nature of what we are. It's not a solution to the sickness that plagues our humanity. This is described, this uh, unyielding despair is described in perhaps my favorite book ever written. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you have read it. I'll force all of you to read it at some point or another. If you haven't read it, let me know. I'll buy you a copy. They're like two bucks because nobody reads it anymore and they absolutely should. It's written by John Bunyan and in it, it's this allegory and he describes seeing a man who is given a book and the book is implied to be the Bible Uh, And he says this, that uh, I saw upon a time that this man was walking in the fields that he was wont reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before crying, what shall I do to be saved? I saw also that he looked this way and that as though as if he were to run. Yet he stood still because as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. And so I looked then, I saw a man named Evangelist come to him and ask him, why are you crying? And he answered, sir, I perceive from this book in my hand that I am condemned to die. And after that, to go to judgment, I find that I am not willing to do the first and I am unable to endure the second. The reality is that the diagnosis that the Bible paints for us of the human condition is grim. And if the only thing Jesus came to do is give you your best life now, it doesn't fix the problem. And we find ourselves like Christian in utter despair. But this is not the picture that the Bible paints of Jesus. He is not simply your best life now, but he is the triple cure to the problem that plagues us as people. This problem is threefold. We've discussed it over these last three weeks. The first is our ignorance of God. This is the first and foundational bleeding wound at the heart of humanity. We simply don't know what God is like. Now, we might know some things about him. You can look at the universe. In fact, almost every human civilization ever has looked at the cosmos and said, there is a God. He seems powerful. And he must be vast because this place is real big. And the more we study it, the bigger it seems to get. And so we may know some things about him, but that is a far cry from truly knowing him. Uh, The God of deism uh, that is vast and powerful and distant is not a God we can pray to. It's not a God that we can know. It's not a God that we can love. We may know some things about God, but we simply will not know him unless he takes that step forward and makes himself known to us. There's a phrase many of you have probably heard. It used to get thrown around all the time when I was in high school, and it was simply preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. 
It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It's a good and helpful statement. It is helpful, but incomplete. Because here's the reality. And I think what's being implied here is this, that, that rather than just talking about being a Christian, you should actually act like one. And, and I totally agree with that. Right on, St. Francis. But the reality is that it always, always, always becomes necessary to use words. This is not a use words if necessary. This is, this is, this is, this is, this is use words always. Because here's the reality. You and I can be the best employees in our job, whatever it might be, whether it's engineering, whether it's uh, working in a lab, whether it's working construction, the best employees, the kindest, the most sacrificial. We can pick up people's shifts for them uh, day in and day out. But what they will not get from that is that they are uh, judged and held in contempt under the law of God for their transgressions against a triune God who has in his sovereignty seen fit to ordain that his son would offer himself as a penal substitutionary atonement for their transgressions, raised for their justification, seated at the right hand of the Father, coming again to judge the living and the dead. They don't get that from you being nice. They never get there. They might get that, that you're a nice person. They might get that you think God exists, but they will never get from nice person to the gospel without you using words. Much in the same way that God will never get from powerful distant one to father and friend unless he speaks. And it's to answer this problem in Israel that God sent prophets and the prophets step into the marketplace and they step into the courts of kings and they step into the temple and they say, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. This is what he's like. Now you know and you have to respond. But the prophets are incomplete. They tell us things about what God is like, but they never fully explain to us what God is like. That is until Jesus. And this is why the author of Hebrews will say it in this way, that in many times and in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these days, he speaks to us by his son. And God will not simply answer our ignorance with another prophet. He will answer our ignorance with a perfect prophet who is not simply recounting his words, but is his very word made flesh. So that when Jesus is approached by the apostles and they say, Lord, would you show us the father? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I and the father are one. It's the reason that Paul can say in Colossians 2, 9, that in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. So our ignorance of what God is like is over because God is like Jesus. Jesus is like God because Jesus has always been God. He answers the problem of our ignorance as a truer and a better prophet. But if this is the only problem that he solves, we're actually worse off than we were when we started. Maybe you've seen the commercials. I mentioned them last week where you have Prozac or some sort of antidepressant and it is an antidepressant that increases your risk of suicide. And you hear that and you say, this doesn't sound particularly helpful. And this is the reality, is that if all that Jesus does is show us what God is like, we are far worse off because now we find ourselves in the position of Isaiah in chapter 6 where he sees a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. He sees that the hem of the Lord's garments fill his sanctuary and he cries out in light of who God is, woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, I am born among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord of hosts. 
Because in seeing what God is like, we realize how unlike him we are. We realize how wicked we are. And we realize how unworthy we are to stand before him, just like Isaiah. You might remember, last week we talked about Martin Luther, that great Protestant reformer, uh, who, whose father wanted him to be a lawyer. And in true rebellious son fashion, he said, I won't be a lawyer, I'm going to be a priest. Which, I've never known a rebellious son that did that, but cool. And so he chooses to be a priest. His father's disappointed in this, but he thinks, well, maybe you can just be the best darn priest in all of Germany. And so at Luther's first mass, after he's been trained, after he's gone to seminary, his father invites all of his friends to watch his son's mass, like that's some sort of entertainment that I guess people did in the Middle Ages. Uh, And so he brings 20 men on horseback across the country of Germany to watch Luther's mass. And we're told that Luther did a great job for the most part until he got to the point where he had to lift up the bread and he had to lift up the wine and consecrate it, uh, lift it up to the Lord and ask the Lord to bless it. Uh, to use these words, uh, this is my body in Latin, hocus corpus meum, uh, as he raises these elements up to God. And he actually describes the experience here. He says, as he uttered these words, he was utterly stupefied and terror stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince. Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that. I am dust and ashes, full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. Some accounts of this experience say that Luther actually started to shake and to spill the grape juice and drop and crumble the crackers and he ran off in terror because he saw what God was like and he saw how unlike him Luther was. And he saw and felt the weight of his guilt before God. To answer our guilt from the minute the law was given, God gives a priesthood. In ancient Israel, you may know this. You may know it from Sunday school or from watching VeggieTales stories or whatever they might be, that that to answer the people's guilt, sacrifices were offered. Hebrews 6 tells us that every high priest was appointed to act on behalf of men before God. And so on behalf of wicked and guilty sinful men, the priest would offer sacrifices, they would offer prayers, they would plead with God on behalf of the people to take their guilt away. But the Old Testament ends with a priesthood continuing and it never being enough. It is never enough because the blood of bulls and goats can never fully take away sin because we just keep sinning. And it is an endless cycle over and over and over and over again. It's an endless stream of blood and death. And we're left wondering at the close of the First Testament, will this ever end? Will it ever be enough? And it's into this void, this wound of our guilt that we hear the voice of John the Baptist pointing at his cousin Jesus saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God provides for himself one more high priest, one final high priest. But unlike every other high priest who was sinful and had to offer offerings for his own sin and then for the sins of the people, this priest in Jesus is not only a great high priest, he is a sinless high priest, which means that he doesn't need to offer a lamb, he can offer himself. 
This echoes God's call to Abraham. He says, take your son, offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain that I'll show you. And as Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain in the book of Genesis, Isaac keeps asking him, Lord, not Lord, Father, Father, where's the sacrifice? And at this point, I think Isaac is starting to get the drift that his dad is, is maybe flipped his lid or has something crazy in mind because they're getting further and further and further up the mountain. And he keeps saying, Father, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, my son, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. And in Christ, he not only provides for himself a priest, and he not only provides for himself a sacrifice, he provides himself as the sacrifice. He does not spare his own son, even as he spares Isaac. But the work of Jesus as a priest doesn't end with Jesus' offering on the cross. Uh, Every other priest before Jesus is hindered by death, and they have to appoint a new priest, and there have to be more sacrifices. But we're told in Hebrews that Jesus has not only offered the atonement, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is why the ascension, it's not just this like little line in the creeds that we dust off every once in a while when we're reading through the Nicene Creed. It's important and it matters because Jesus was not simply a priest. He was and he is your great high priest. And therefore, he can save to the uttermost. Because as John, First uh, John says in chapter 2, that we're, it's written so that we won't sin, but when we sin, we have an advocate, the ascended, risen, reigning Christ, who intercedes on our behalf when we stumble, our great high priest. But there's still one more problem. And this, in this problem are collapsed a great number of problems. Because the reality is that the New Testament doesn't just describe us as guilty before God for our sins. It doesn't simply describe us as being um, polluted and guilty and corrupted before God in our sins. It actually goes a step further. It uses an image that our nation uh, recoils at because of the horror Uh, that we've experienced regarding it. Uh, The New Testament doesn't simply say we are guilty before God. It calls us slaves to sin. Not simply that we are guilt uh, held in contempt and in guilt, but we are held as prisoners to the sin that makes us guilty. Paul will say in Titus 3, verse 3, describing uh, his life before Christ, that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, He'll say the same thing in Romans, that whoever sins is a slave to sin. Peter, in his first epistle, will say, whatever masters a man by this thing is he enslaved. From the lips of Jesus in John 8, 33 through 36, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. We're not just guilty, we're enslaved. And with this in mind, can anybody help but cry out with Paul, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As he considers what it's like to know what we ought to do and to continue to do what we should not do, even as we hate the things we do because we know that they're wrong. How is that for a tongue twister? I think I got it out right. So what's the answer to this? How does God answer not just our guilt in the priesthood, but our slavery to sin? Well, in ancient Israel, the answer to those who would oppress God's people, those who would enslave God's people, was a king. In ancient Israel, 
The king's charge was to defend and deliver the people from bondage and to guard them against those who would do them harm. Now, we should take note, there's a lot of bad kings in Israel. There's a lot of kings who don't do what they're supposed to. But that doesn't mean that there's not an official charge for the king. In Jeremiah 11, God will lay this on those who would sit on the throne of David, that their concern should be for the oppressed and the burdened. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, the Lord will make this promise. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, who will do what is just in the land. In his, in his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will live in safety. His name, by which he will be called, is the Lord, our righteous Savior. How desperately you and I need such a king to set us free. So what's the answer? We need a king. How does Jesus fulfill this? Well, I told you we'd get to Colossians 2. And we're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. The text will be on your screen. It says this, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him by forgiving us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with, his, with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Now, what does this have to do with slavery and bondage to sin? Well, we kind of need to peel back the layers of history a little bit here because what Paul's saying is lost to us. Uh, in our day and age, we know a bit about debt. I know a little bit about debt. I got the credit cards once I graduated college. I bought the impulsive PS4 and I'm paying the consequences for it. We know how debt works. Uh, there, there's this wonderful thing called Financial Peace University. If you're really trying to pay off your credit cards, we'd love to help you with that. Uh, but in our day... Debt, debt affects us. It affects us greatly. We can't get house loans. We can't get car loans. Our credit score plummets. The ancient world, and in the ancient world, the way that debt affected people was infinitely more catastrophic. Because in the ancient world, you have two options when you're in debt to somebody who comes to collect on the loan. One, you sell yourself as a slave to that person, and you work until they think you've paid off what you owe them. Two, they throw you in what is called debtor's prison. And there's this wonderful logic behind debtor's prison. It's simply this. In order to get out of debtor's prison, you have to pay the debt. But you can't pay the debt because in debtor's prison, you can't work to make the money to pay the debt that puts you in debtor's prison in the first place. So brilliant system in the ancient world. Credit cards, however wicked they may be, are way better than that. But this is actually the analogy that Paul is using is that we have accrued a debt, and that debt has made us slaves. He talks about the debtor's note. And so there are two options for us as debtors in sin. One, we find ourselves in the confinement of prison, or two, we find ourselves under the yoke of slavery. But either way, the debt that we have accrued as sinners has set upon us bonds that are too great for us to break ourselves. We will never find a way out of this slavery that we have submitted ourselves to or the prison of our sin that we have locked ourselves in. But thanks be to God that while we were dead in our trespasses and enslaved to our debts of sin, that God made alive made us alive together with Christ by canceling this record of debt that stood against us and held us captive with its legal demands. He sets it aside by nailing it to the cross. Now, the Greek here carries infinitely more weight than what the English renders. 
This phrase that our record of debt, the thing that has held us captive and held us in bondage, being canceled. We think, oh, canceled. Uh, Credit score goes back up. Maybe Capital One stops calling you about the PS4 that you bought on Impulse. I'm projecting my own life onto y'all. we think that in terms of canceled, but the Greek word here is not simply to kind of cross out or maybe mark off of the call list. The Greek word here is to utterly obliterate, to completely annihilate, to uncreate, to completely reduce to nothing. The thing that holds the people of God captive as slaves to sin through the work of Christ the King has been completely and utterly eradicated eradicated by being nailed to the cross, taken off of the door of your cell and placed onto the method of execution for the Son of God. And in so doing, our king destroys the yoke that has held us captive. He goes on using these kingly uh, descriptions of Jesus. He says, not only did he obliterate the record of debt that stood against us. Verse 15, he says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, we lose what's being said here in the sands of time. Many of you have likely seen the videos of the celebrations that happened after the victory in World War II. These ticker tape parades where it looks like It's raining confetti, and I don't really even know how they ever cleaned it all up. It's this celebration of this tremendous victory won on behalf of a nation. Well, we didn't invent that when we defeated Hitler. Uh, These sort of celebrations and parades have existed for a very, very long time. In Roman culture, when the emperor, when the ruler, when the king of Rome conquered an opposing nation... There was a practice by which these rulers and these leaders were put to something called an open shame, which meant that the emperor of Rome would take them and he would parade them through the streets of the capital to humiliate them and to demonstrate Rome's power and victory over those who had been conquered. And this is what Paul actually says the cross is. Uh, The cross is not simply the death blow. The cross is the victory lap. That in being nailed to the cross with our record of debt, Jesus is not losing. He is triumphing. In being nailed to the cross with our record of debt, he is disarming the powers of hell and of Satan that have held us captive. He is not simply disarming them, but he is parading them through the heavenly realms in an open shame, showing the triumph of the Son of God over the powers and the kingdoms of the world watched a debate a number of years ago with uh, a non-believer, and it was a debate concerning uh, what to make of Jesus. And he made this statement that so struck me. He said, you know, you may be able to make a case for God and, and maybe a case for, for certain things, but when you come down to this, this Jewish man who dies on a cross, what a small, petty thing to make the central, uh, make the central tenet of your faith. And in my head, I said, have you not read... which I think is a fully biblical thing to say. But have you not read what is happening on the cross? Have you not read that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise? Have you not read that on the cross, the king is not being conquered, but is parading his captives and those who have been conquered through the heavenlies? This is Jesus' victory lap in bringing many sons to glory and putting the power of hell to an open shame and answering the last wound at the heart of our humanity, 
which is our captivity and slavery to sin. He takes our captors and parades them in shame across the heavenly realms, triumphing in victory in the cross and in the resurrection. Now, this sounds tremendous. This sounds wonderful. We should be excited about this. But you might say, well, that's what a king's supposed to do, right? If his people are carried off, what good king lets them get carried off and just says, well, we'll make more? I don't know how that works out. Never mind. Um, what, what good king does that? But, but the reality is that if we were simply these unwitting people who are carried off against our will into slavery of sin, that would be one thing. But that's not even how the Bible paints us. It ba- paints us not simply as slaves to sin, not simply as people who are bound to our own wickedness, but it paints us as co-conspirators and co-rebels against the throne of God itself. We are not dragged unwillingly into our sin, at least not according to the biblical witness. We go gladly. It's for this reason that Jesus in John chapter 3 can say, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness. It's not just that we got dragged here kicking and screaming. It's not just that we're these sad people who were carried off into slavery. We are openly and happily rebelling against the throne of the author of all goodness itself. So it's not simply that Jesus is bringing back those who were lost. He is bringing back those who ran. He's not simply bringing back those who were carried off. He is bringing back those who have developed a sense of Stockholm syndrome with their own captors. We love sin. We delight in sin. We delight in wickedness. And in so doing, we set ourselves up against the throne of God. What other king would at such cost to himself save the very people who have set their face against him? James says friendship with the world is hostility and enmity towards God. Colossians chapter 1 says that we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. We are not simply God's people carried off. We are God's enemies restored by a perfect king. I think this is so wonderfully mirrored in the life of David. Uh, chapter, or, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, there is a man in David's kingdom named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, who is one of David's close friends. He was the son of Saul. Mephibosheth is the rightful heir to the throne, just biologically speaking, because he's out of Saul's lineage. But God has taken the throne from the house of Saul. He's given it to the house of David. It was common practice in the ancient world that when a new king took over and he wasn't part of the previous dynasty, he killed everyone who was. And this is not simply mean although it is a little mean, I guess. Um, This is done because at any given point, somebody who has a blood claim to the throne can come up and say, I'm the rightful king, bump you, and wage a war against the throne of the king. And so David asks this question as the king. He says, is there anybody left from Saul's line? Is there anybody left from the house of Jonathan? And you read this text and you think David's about to wipe out the last regime. And he follows that up with, anybody left who I can show kindness to? And so they say, yeah, there, there is somebody. His name is Mephibosheth, uh, and he is crippled. He is unable to walk. He is lame in his legs. And maybe they say that 
in part, well, in part because it's true, but also because they're hoping that maybe David will spare this, this guy. It's like he's not really going to be a threat. He, he can't even run after you. And David says, bring him to me. And so they go and they, they take Mephibosheth, who rightfully is an enemy of the throne, who David has every right as the new king to put to death so that he will not try to lay claim on the throne that David has inherited. And he has Mephibosheth brought to his banquets. And we're told that every day for the rest of his life, Mephibosheth spent his life in the house of the king. He ate from the king's banquet and he sat with David. And what a picture of what our king has done in Christ. That while we were his enemies, while we were usurpers to his throne, and while we were dead in our sins and as lame as Mephibosheth found himself to be, that he sought us out not to destroy us for our insurrection, but to bring us in our brokenness to his table and into restoration. Like Jesus' priesthood, his kingship does not end with his ascension. We've said that Jesus continues to be our great high priest. He continues to intercede for us. The reality is that even now, just as it was before the foundations of the world, Jesus is sovereign king and Lord over all things. And the work of the king in his kingdom is not finished. The kingdom of God goes forward as the gospel spreads. The kingdom of God is among us now as we read from his word and as it's preached and as it's sung. The kingdom of God goes forward in power when you will come to the Lord's table after this and take communion. The kingdom of God, the kingship of Jesus is exerted every time a lost person comes to saving faith and is baptized into new life. And the kingdom of God will come in its fullness with the return of its king. Because the reality is that it's not simply you and I who find ourselves in bondage and slavery to sin. It's not just people. It's everything that has been marred by our wickedness. Romans 8, 19 through 23, Paul says this, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself might be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, not only in the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The king's work of setting captives free is not finished. Understand this and hear me. If you, if you gather nothing from tonight, uh, press this into your minds. The end game of the New Testament and the Christian life is not you and me dying and going to heaven. That's nice, but there is life after life after death. The end game of the New Testament is a new heaven and a new earth 
It is a king and his kingdom. The end game of the New Testament is every knee bowing and every tongue confessing what has always been true, that Jesus Christ was and is and will forever be Lord and king over his creation. That is the end game. Jesus does not stop being king, but his kingdom expands into its fullness at the end of time in the consummation. It's so wonderfully captured in the text that we read, that Zida read for us. Revelations 20. 1, 1 through 5, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, and he who sits on that throne says, behold, I am making all things new. As the king brings into fulfillment his kingdom and sets free the creation and the people who were subject to the slavery of sin. We are right to call Jesus Messiah. And Savior. We are right to call him Lord because in his person and in his work and in his flesh and in his ongoing ministry at the right hand of the Father, he has answered our ignorance. He has removed our guilt and he has set us free from the tyranny and the slavery of sin as our prophet and our priest and our king. Let's pray. Father, what a mighty thing you have done in your son. Lord, to set us free from this slavery. Lord, to answer our ignorance with yourself. Lord, to remove our guilt. And God, our hope is not simply in this life, but our hope is that with our eyes we will see the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. That is, the kingdom of God comes in its fullness at the end of time. And not simply uh, in some spiritual sense, but with new and real bodies, we will see Jesus. Because at long last, all that has been made captive to sin will be set free and made new. Lord, as we come to your table, as we take communion, as we continue in worship, Father, I pray that these truths would dwell in us richly. Lord, what an unending source of hope and joy and comfort and, uh, and strength you give us in the work of your son. God, I pray that it would be those things to us. We ask all these things in his name.